Well, that's a new song that we wanted to introduce to you tonight, and hopefully we'll get a chance to sing that uh, in the, the weeks to come. But uh, I love that song because it expresses well the prayer of the author of Psalm 130, who was waiting patiently on God in the midst of a severely troubling and distressing situation. And I would submit to you tonight that no one has ever been in a more troubling, distressing situation or ever had to endure greater grief and despair than our Lord Jesus on the eve of his death in the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ's agonizing experience that night when out of the depths he cried to his heavenly Father in prayer is recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And tonight I want to look at Mark's account of one of the most solemn, solemn, sobering moments in Christ's life and ministry. And so I invite you to take your Bibles to turn and turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And as you're turning there, listen to what um, others have said about this sacred scene. Charles Spurgeon said, here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. This is a mystery like that which Moses saw when the bush burned with fire and was not consumed. No man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It is a subject of prayerful, heartbroken meditation more than for human language. More recently, John MacArthur said this, we cannot comprehend the depth of Jesus' agony because as the sinless and holy God incarnate, he was able to perceive the horror of sin in a way we cannot. Therefore, even to attempt to understand the suffering of Jesus that night on the Mount of Olives is to tread on holy ground. The mystery is too profound for human beings to comprehend and even for angels, we can only stand in awe of the God-man. And D.A. Carson said this, quote, as his death was unique, so also was his anguish, and our best response to it is hushed worship. I think the essence of these comments is that it is impossible for us to fully comprehend what Jesus went through on that dreadful night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now granted, all of us experience grief and pain and sorrow at various times and in various degrees throughout our lives. It may be the heartache of an unhappy marriage or the disappointment of a, a miscarried pregnancy or grief over a wayward child or the despair of chronic pain or terminal illness or the painful loss of a loved one to death. And yet none of us, no matter how great our pain and anguish have experienced, nor will we ever experience the depth of pain and anguish that Jesus experienced at Gethsemane. It was truly unthinkable, unspeakable what he went through. Now we're all familiar with the term Gethsemane. It's a literal place that I've actually had the privilege of being at a number of times on trips to Israel. 
but it's a secluded spot located in an olive orchard at the foot of the Mount of Olives, directly across from the Kidron Valley, um, from the temple. It was one of Jesus' favorite spots to get away from the crowds and talk to his disciples and pray. The name Gethsemane literally means oil press. And it was there that olives were harvested and pressed to produce olive oil. And I'll never forget when we actually went to um, a little reenactment of uh, a New Testament village and they had a, an olive press and they showed us exactly how they pressed these olives and they explained how traditionally olives are pressed three times. They're initially crushed with this big grinding wheel and then they're actually put in the presses where they're pressed three separate times to produce three different levels or qualities of oil. And I found that very intriguing in light of the fact that here in the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the Garden of the Oil Press, Jesus was pressed essentially three times. Three times he went away and prayed to his heavenly Father. And spiritually speaking, on that dreadful night, Jesus was being pressed, he was being squeezed, he was being crushed to death by the grief that was in his heart. Notice in Mark chapter 14, verse 34. Mark records, and he said to them, Jesus speaking to his disciples, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. The burden he was carrying was so great, it was virtually squeezing the life out of him. And it would have ultimately killed him were it not for the divine comfort and strength that he received that night through prayer. The question was, what caused him such grief and suffering? What pained him so? What caused him to be so distressed? What made him feel so afraid and so alone? I don't think it was necessarily the anticipation of the unjust trials the, the mocking crowds, the, the crown of thorns, the beatings, the nails in his hands and feet, the, the spear in his side, all of which he was anticipating. I think his grief was caused by a combination of other things, all of which compounded his grief to the point that it almost overwhelmed him. And I want us to see tonight as we walk our way through these Verses, the six pressures that Jesus faced that overwhelmed him with grief. In other words, he was grieved by the thought of six things. First of all, he was grieved by the thought of being separated from his father. Notice what it says in verse 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
First and foremost, Jesus was grieved by the thought of being separated from his father. As the sinless son of God, he had only ever known perfect, unbroken communion with God. But he knew the moment that he became sin on the cross, God would have to look away from him since God in his holiness cannot look at sin. And so Jesus was horrified by the thought of being made sin for us because sin separates a person from God. And he shuddered at the thought of being separated from God, which made him cry out to him, Father, isn't there any other way? Luke says that he first knelt down. According to Matthew, he eventually fell prostrate on his face on the ground. But notice specifically the words of his prayer. He, he calls out to God and calls him Abba, which was the common Aramaic way young children would address their father. It was the, the, the informal daddy term. It was an expression of intimacy and familiarity. In fact, expressing this type of intimacy with God, with God was, was foreign to Judaism in that day. In fact, the Jewish leaders considered it blasphemy. That's why they wanted to stone Jesus because he referred to God, or God as his father. And so he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. What is this cup that he was referring to? Well, in the Old Testament, the term cup was used to describe God's wrath being poured out upon sin. It was in a cup and it would be poured out upon mankind. And so the full impact of what Jesus was about to do overwhelmed him. He realized that he would have to take that cup of God's wrath out of the Father's hand and drink it dry. In order for his death to provide a way for us not to have to drink God's wrath or experience God's wrath, he would have to drink it for us. And that's exactly what happened. On the cross, God poured out all of his wrath for sin upon Christ. And Christ Face the full fury of God's wrath against our sin. Why? So that we would never have to experience it ourselves. And so as Jesus anticipated becoming the object of divine wrath, he naturally cried out for a way of escape. Deliver me. Take it away. Jesus knew that God could do anything he wanted. Anything is possible with God. And so he asked him if there was any other possible way for him to provide forgiveness for sins than by his death on the cross. Lord, please do it, whatever it is. Hebrews chapter five, verse seven says this about Jesus. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Luke tells us 
in his gospel that Jesus prayed with such intensity that his sweat became like great drops of blood. Now that could have been metaphorically. In other words, his sweat looked like blood the way it was dropping down. Or it could have been medically that it was actually becoming bloody. And those of you that are in the medical field know that it is medically possible that when a person's body is under extreme pressure or physical strain, the capillaries that are just below the surface of the skin can burst and mingle with the sweat as it comes out the pores. I actually saw that with my own eyes when my wife was in labor for our first child. That she was pushing so hard that the capillaries in her face burst and there started to be blood coming down her face, her cheeks. Notice again the prayer, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me yet, and this is the part that we all know and love, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus knew ultimately what mattered most is not what he wanted, but what God wanted. And he willingly surrendered his will for his life to God's will for his life. It was always Jesus' greatest desire to do God's will rather than his own. This is a hard prayer to pray, isn't it? Because God brings us all to places in our lives where we need to pray this prayer. And we need to remember that prayer is not bending God's will to our will, but rather it's bowing our will to his will. The goal of prayer is not to get God to do whatever we want, but to submit to whatever he wants for us. I was reading one of my favorite authors in preparation for tonight's message, J.C. Ryle, in his expository thoughts on Mark, said this, and I thought it was very um, powerful and practical. What we see here is this. He says, to take patiently whatever God sends, to like nothing but what God likes, to wish nothing but what God approves, to prefer pain if it please God to send it, to forego ease if God does not think fit to bestow it, to lie passive under God's hand and know no will but his. Ralph says, this is the highest standard at which we can aim. And of this, our Lord's conduct and Gethsemane is a perfect pattern. So I ask you tonight, are you struggling with or resisting God's will for your life? Is there something that you want that he hasn't provided for you or something you're doing that you know he doesn't want you to do, but you've chosen to do it anyway? I would encourage you based on the example of Christ here that you surrender these things to God in prayer and submit your will to whatever his will is for your life. So Jesus was pressured by the thought of being separated from the Father. Secondly, he was pressured by the thought of being tempted by Satan. 
Now, you may be looking quickly, well, where is Satan even mentioned in this text? I don't seem to remember Satan being a part of this scene or playing a role in this scene unless maybe you remember the movie The Passion by uh, Mel Gibson's version, right? And uh, I'll never forget in that opening scene in the garden, they had a snake go through the garden. And I thought, while there were some other weird things about that movie that I was like, okay, I don't believe that. I don't agree with that. I never saw that in the Bible. I thought, you know what? I appreciate that artistic liberty they took to demonstrate that Satan was there in the garden. Even though he's not explicitly mentioned, we can be sure that his evil presence was lurking in the shadows of the garden. John tells us that just a few hours earlier at the Last Supper that Satan had entered Judas and motivated him to betray Jesus into the hands of the religious leaders. Luke records that when Jesus was arrested, he said this, the hour or this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Again, implying that this was, this was Satan's hour. I'm sure you know that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Satan tempted him in the wilderness. In fact, Mark records it back in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, very briefly. Mark chapter 1, verse 12, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beast, and the angels were ministering to him. We know in that during those 40 days that Satan tempted Jesus to demand his rights as the Son of God, his right for food, his right for protection, his right for sovereignty. The point is that from the very first temptation, Satan was trying to get Jesus to do what he had done, to rebel against God. And if he could just get Jesus to rebel against God and his will for his life, then he would be disqualified from being the sinless sacrifice for sin and keep him from conquering him. And now here he was again, tempting him to demand his rights. Perhaps, again, this is conjecture, but the devil may have whispered in his ear something like, you don't deserve to suffer and die. You're the son of God. You deserve honor. You deserve glory, not the shame of the cross. And I personally believe that it was in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus experienced his most intense conflict with Satan. Why? Because this was Satan's last ditch effort to mess up God's plan of salvation. Since he knew that, that Christ's death meant his destruction. And that's why throughout Jesus' life he was trying uh, to get him to boycott the cross. Remember even Peter brazenly declared that Jesus would never die as long as it was up to him. It was, in other words, over my dead body, Jesus, I'll let somebody kill you. And what did Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Peter. No, get thee behind me, Satan. And just as in the wilderness, I think Satan tempted Jesus three times. Three times. 
He went to pray three times. Also, Luke recorded an angel came and strengthened Jesus in the garden, just like the angels had ministered uh, to him after he was tempted in the wilderness. I think we can go to school here on how to resist temptation. How did Jesus resist Satan's onslaught of temptation? Well, in the wilderness, he did it by what? You remember? Quoting scripture, quoting God's word. And here he overcame temptation by praying to God. What a great reminder that the word and prayer are the two divine weapons that we've been given to resist temptation. So Jesus was pressured by the thought of being separated from the Father. He was feeling pressured by being tempted by Satan. Thirdly, he was feeling pressure by the thought of being disappointed by his closest friends. Notice verse 37, and he came and found them sleeping, Peter, James, and John. Simon, he said, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words, and again he came back and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Apparently, Jesus had left eight of his disciples to stand guard at the gate of the garden, and he'd invited Peter, James, and John to follow him into the garden. These were the three men that made up Christ's inner circle. They were the ones that Jesus spent the most time with, training and equipping for the special leadership role that they would play within the church after Christ went back to heaven. This was not the first time that they got to um, have a special experience with the Lord on two other occasions. They, Jesus took Peter, James, and John away on a, a special field trip, if you will, to teach them um, some valuable lessons. Um, they, they were there to witness the healing of Jairus' daughter. Um, more, memorably, more memorably, they were there at the Mount of Transfiguration. The point is, these were Jesus' closest friends. He wanted them to see and to hear what he was going through. And so he brought them with him and he told them to watch and pray. And he went about a stone's throw away, it says, which was only about maybe 30 or 40 yards. And so they could have easily seen him writhing in agonizing prayer and possibly even hear his deep groans and heavy sighs. But instead of doing what Jesus had asked them to do, they fell asleep Now granted, it was late, probably around midnight. They had just had a long, eventful week. They just came from a big meal, the Passover supper, and they had had to walk about a mile, and so they were probably exhausted. But I think if they truly sensed the urgency of the moment, they would have had enough spiritual adrenaline 
coursing in their veins to keep them awake. Luke actually mentions that they were sleeping from sorrow, which implies that they were sleeping not because they were exhausted, but just to escape the confusion and depression that they were feeling. How many of us, when we, when we had a bad day or something bad happens, we're like, we just go take a nap <laughs> because it's the one way we don't have to think about it. We don't have to deal with it. But what a disappointment it must have been to come back three times and find his three closest friends dozing off. That sight obviously added more weight to his already heavy heart. Jesus wasn't surprised. He knew their weakness. In fact, he had already predicted that they would fall away but that still didn't alleviate the pain caused by their apathy, their indifference during these final hours of his life. They seemed to be oblivious to the agony that he was experiencing. And so they failed to offer him any kind of support and comfort during the most difficult struggle of his life. But again, there's a good lesson here for us. Notice he says, keep watching, verse 38, and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Jesus commanded them to pray. Why? So that they would have the strength to endure the trials and temptations that were about to burst upon them. And yet despite his warnings, they had a false sense of confidence. They felt no need to be alert, much less to seek God's strength and protection through prayer. And so just as he had predicted. When the soldiers came to get Jesus, what did they do? They all split. And Peter, the most courageous of the disciples, ended up denying Christ not just once, but three times. Ironically, the same number of times that he had fallen asleep when he should have been praying. Self-confidence leads to spiritual complacency, which leads to temptation, which leads to sin and spiritual defeat and disaster. You want to be victorious spiritually? You need to stay alert in prayer and depend fully on our Heavenly Father. Listen, if the Son of God needed to cry out to his heavenly father in a time of temptation and grief, then how much more do we have to? There was another pressure that Jesus was feeling. It was the thought of being betrayed by Judas. Notice verse 41, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough, the hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Verse 43, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one, seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. For months, the religious leaders 
have been looking for an opportunity to arrest Jesus without starting a riot. And they finally got their opportunity with the help of Judas. I'm sure Judas had been to this garden many times before with Jesus and his disciples. And so he led the mob, possibly a thousand people, some commentators say, carrying swords and clubs and torches to the place where he knew Jesus would be spending the night. And because it was dark, they wanted to make sure they didn't arrest the wrong guy, so Judas said, hey, I know exactly what we can do. I'll greet Jesus with a kiss so you know exactly who he is. A kiss was a a normal way for a disciple to to greet his teacher. It was a sign of love. It was a sign of, of loyalty. And I think that's what made Judas's kiss so heinous and so hypocritical. And so in the midst of everything else that Jesus was agonizing over, he had to deal with the awful tragedy of a lost disciple. If you've experienced it, you know there is nothing more hurtful, more painful than when a trusted friend betrays you. And that's what Judas did. Along with that, I think closely associated to that, Jesus felt the pressure of being rejected by his own people. Being rejected by his own people. Notice verse 46. They laid hands on him and seized him, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but this has, been taken, this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. The Jewish leaders had come loaded for bear just in case Jesus or his disciples tried to resist his arrest and guess who tried to resist? Peter. He pulled out one of their two swords apparently that he carried with them and he tried to cut off the head of the high priest's slave but he had such bad aim he ended up whacking off his ear. Should have stuck with fishing I think wasn't much of a swordsman, and Jesus, it says in the other Gospels, performed his last miracle by healing Malchus's ear. But then he turns to the religious leaders and he rebukes them. He said, what? You guys are treating me like some kind of robber or murderer. If I'm such a dangerous guy, why didn't you arrest me in broad daylight when I was teaching in the temple? The fact that you're coming to me tonight to arrest me in the middle of middle of the the, the night in, in secret proves that you're the ones who are guilty. I'm innocent. And so we know that Jesus' heart was grieved, that his own people, the Jews, the, the very ones who should have embraced him as their Messiah, ended up rejecting him and crucifying him. In fact, earlier that week, during his triumphal entry, he had wept in roughly the same location because the Jews missed their opportunity to receive him. And he knew that because of that, the holy city of Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. And so he felt that pressure, that weight of being rejected by his own people. And then finally, he felt the pressure of being deserted by his his own disciples. 
being deserted by his disciples. Verse 50, and they all left him and fled. When Jesus didn't resist arrest, the faith and loyalty of of his disciples collapsed. And they all ran away in fear, just like he had predicted. Back in the upper room, verse 27, Jesus said, you will all fall away. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. And as I already mentioned, a few hours later, his most bold disciple would deny that he even knew Jesus. And then our passage ends with two odd verses. Verse 51, a young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body and they seized him but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. You're like, who's this naked guy? What's up with that? Well, most commentators believe that this was Mark's way of autographing his book as an eyewitness to this event. Like, I was there. I was the naked guy. (laughs) Um... You say, well, how did that happen? Well, according to church tradition, the Last Supper was held in the home of Mark's mother. And Judas may have taken the mob there first, thinking that Jesus was still there, and the commotion roused Mark out of sleep, and he quickly jumped out of bed, wrapped his sheet around him, and ran to the garden to warn Jesus. And again, it's all conjecture, but the simple point here of this incident is in Jesus' time of greatest need, his closest friends abandoned him. And he was left totally alone in the darkest hour of his life. One of my joys as a pastor, one of my privileges as a pastor is helping people work through the darkest hours of their lives. And when we're grief-stricken or struggling through a heart-wrenching trial, it's easy to feel like there is no one who can relate to what we're going through. I've actually had people say to me in a moment of frustration, "Do do you know what it's like to go through what I'm going through? Have you ever been treated the way I'm being treated? And my standard response is, no. (laughs) I don't know what it's like. But I know someone who does. And we go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And then chapter four, verse 14, therefore since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God leads all of us through our own personal 
Gethsemanes. Someone described that as the place we go when there's no place to go but God. It's a place where we suffer. It's a place where we fight and wrestle and struggle with God in prayer and learn to completely surrender our wills to him. Thankfully, it's not a place where we have to suffer alone. Because through his suffering, he became a faithful high priest to whom we can go for help and hope in our darkest hour. Jesus suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane alone so we would never have to suffer alone. He knows, he cares, he understands. Are you in the midst of a personal Gethsemane? A garden of grief? Are you feeling overwhelmed by all sorts of pressures on all sides like Jesus was? I invite you to the Garden of Gethsemane where you can draw comfort and strength by remembering the awful grief and pressure that Jesus endured to deliver you, deliver, deliver me from sin. Isaiah 53 says this, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And then verse 10 says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. It was the Lord. It was God himself. Jesus' heavenly father that was crushing him, causing him grief. Why? to deliver us from having to experience his wrath and grief, the greatest grief we would ever experience in hell. You may be familiar with that old hymn, Lead Me to Calvary. It goes like this, may I be willing, Lord, to bear daily my cross for thee, even thy cup of grief to share, thou hast borne all for me, lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. Let's pray. Father, this has been a good reminder for us lest we forget Gethsemane, lest we forget the agony that you endured there. But ultimately, lest we forget the love 
that you were showing to us by crushing your son in our place. Lord, we have the amazing privilege to take communion now. And it's all for the purpose of remembering. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to honor the memory of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross. And Father, that you would be working again in the hearts of everyone here, those of us that know you, who have the hope of forgiveness already, Lord, that we would worship you and thank you and praise you for your great sacrifice for us. And Lord, for those who may be here that have yet to commit their life to Christ, that they would feel compelled to give their life, to submit their life completely to Christ in the next few moments, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.